Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hello everyone, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but the flavour of my insomnia has evolved. So there's good news, which is that I'm no longer waking up every day at 4.30. Okay. I'm waking up every day at 2.15. Oh. And then going back to sleep for an hour at about five. Oh, I hate that fall back to sleep moment, though, because you then wake up in a complete panic when the alarm goes off. I'm having to set an alarm for the first time in about 10 years. But actually, it's better. Is it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's much less toxic. That hour, if I can just get, obviously I'm becoming increasingly desperate, just make sure I get that perfect (laughs) little hour early in the morning. If I can get that, then I'm golden. It's completely different from the horrifically early start. So actually, it's good news. Oh, good. Okay, so it's, um, I'm absolutely fine and... We take the rough with the smooth these days, right? Yeah, well, hi, I'm Emily. I'm absolutely fine. But I caught myself talking to myself the other day, which is obviously like standard, mm. but basically listing all the things that I've got to do. The problem is, is that I'm also not listening to myself. So basically... So you look insane, but it's also unhelpful. Exactly. Look and feel insane. Exactly. It's like a sort of, I'm sort of humming with it. It's like a singing the sort of pre-Christmas song, isn't it? Do this, get the carol, get this, get this. It's like a sort of endless list that will never be completed. Oh my God. Anyway, 2023 has been huge for our guest Anna Whitehouse, who's formerly known as Mother Pucker. She has been fighting for flexible working rights for eight years. And this week it was announced that her bill will become law in 2024. Amazing. Her Heart FM radio show is going from strength to strength with over 11 million listeners. She's also written a pair of books about childcare and flexible working called Divide and Conquer. And the person with whom she wrote these books is her soon-to-be ex-husband. And they are plotting a loving divorce. It can't be easy writing, working, being an activist while also negotiating the dying embers of a marriage. So many plates spinning. Anna, how the fuck are you? I'm absolutely fine. But on the edge, I was in the bath with my daughter at the weekend and I was trying to like do some work on my phone and she was just picking my tit up and splashing it in the water (laughs) as I was on the phone and I took the executive decision to let her continue doing that because it was a module of entertainment so (laughs) I'm absolutely fine but my tits are hanging my (laughs) my mind is on the edge and I'm holding on for dear life I remember when they used to float I've always had such big boobs and they were like, they, they could have saved lives. They floated so effectively. <laughs> but I know what you mean. Lift it up and my God, that can create almost like a mini tidal wave with the force with which it splashes down. A titty tidal wave. It's also the fact that one is so busy and one has so little precious time to get everything done that anything that distracts the children, including one's saggy breasts, will just do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no pride at all. <laughs> oh, exactly. So, Anna, 2023, eh? How are you feeling? Oh, God. 2023. Well, I got divorced. The flexible working bill went through and I'm on sort of vaguely good terms with our pet hamster. Uh, I cucumber trained her for my daughter. So that was a triumph. And I've realised that um, when I broke my nose walking into a Weatherspoon's door about uh, 20 years ago, I've got to have that straightened because I can't breathe through one nostril. So overall... Overall, I'd say six out of ten. I mean, I think that's pretty good. I'd say that's optimism, all things fucking considered. No, I mean, it's it's been amazing. I mean, you know, you look sensational. Yes, she does. And on you plough. What I want to talk to you quickly about, we need to separate all these things. There's so much going on, Anna, for God's sake. I want to talk to you about what 
state was the flexible or non-flexible working situation eight years ago, just when you were on the cusp of starting to agitate around this? What made you want to and need to do it? And where are we now? I love uh, the way you describe that, agitate around it. (laughs) (laughs) Get really fucked off and start shouting. (laughs) Really angry. Um, Well, I said it in a post yesterday that I don't think when I got really angry one day and posted it to the internet as an accidental influencer, you know, an accidental activist, I suppose, is the way to describe it. There was no... There was no intention to take this on. I don't think I could have ever imagined the words flexible working being attached to the word bill. Like, you know, that was some utopian vision, some fantasy land that would have had to go via Boris Johnson and various other Tory MPs who uh, would have cop blocked it. And I think if I'm being honest, I am an optimistic person. Uh, I am positive. But weirdly, I set off, if you ask where it was eight years ago, I set off on what I felt was quite a futile mission. You know, I started something that was, like you say, uh, sort of like a blue bottle in a jar is how it felt, you know, and that was always going to be contained by the Lord Sugars of this world, the Sir Dysons of this world, those with bigger money, bigger power, you know, helicopters, wraparound nannies, uh, you know, the, the Goliaths to our Davids. I never thought there was a way through, but what I had done was underestimate the abject rage of women. (laughs) And I think that actually, if you ask, you know, where it was and where it is, uh, I'm just a face, a spokesperson. I'm the person that can actually say the things because I won't lose my job in doing so. But actually the army of women, and it's important to say like pregnant, then screwed, the March of the Mummies, Like there has been this guttural, primal, maternal outpouring of enough. And that was what I underestimated. So to be absolutely honest, the legislation, great, it's changing. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much uh, to all the patriarchal MPs who've allowed us (laughs) to exist uh, in a decent, equal way. Thank you so much. Really, what it comes down to is the cultural change that women aren't taking the shit anymore. So that's what I hadn't seen changing. So it's great that we're celebrating the Flexible Working Bill. No, it's each and every woman who has walked through fire to exist in a working world that says, no, as soon as sperm hits over, you're out, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's fascinating to me about this is never underestimate an incredibly tired woman. <laughs> you know that all these bitches have done it ex- afraid around the edges with like a sort of, you know, completely kind of poisonous exhaustion. And yet, and yet, here we find ourselves. I love that. A poisonous exhaustion. So on that note, quickly, I don't you ever saw in the pandemic when we were at peak rage, you know, like I think if there was ever a moment for women to really start exploding, it was like some Margaret Atwood novel that we'd gone back in time to. And in New York, there were a group of 20 women who every week met at distance to scream on a football (laughs) with rage at how, you know, the world is not set up for us to succeed. It's no. that simple. In terms of the law, just just some broad brushstrokes is what I can cope with. What's the difference between then and now with the Flexible Working Bill? What difference will that make to the day-to-day lives of these women? Of us, really? 
Yeah, all of us. So historically, well, previously, you had to wait 26 weeks in a job before you were allowed to ask or request. And the reasons that those uh, requests would be declined were very lofty, very empty. An employer could just go, no, pretty easily. So it was toothless. uh, And it was, again, talking about cop blocking. If I had flexible working in one role. And then I was thinking, but I really want to go to that job over there. I wouldn't do it because I knew I had to wait 26 weeks in that role to even be afforded the right to ask at which I'd be told no. And at that point, you know, if we're talking about the weight of childcare that is on our shoulders, anybody knows that once you get into the nursery system or the school system, you don't have the option of going, yeah, sorry, actually, now uh, now I'm going to need to change it 5,000 times, it's like a Rubik's Cube. So it was basically stunting talent. Um, and now what we get from April 2024, which is big, because I didn't think it was going to happen, if I'm being honest, I thought they'd slide out of the promises they'd made around the sort of general election. 20, 24 April, uh, get it in your diaries because things are going to change. You have a right to request from day one. So, mm. you know, as you go into that interview, you can say, I've got a job share who I can do this with. Uh, I need to do four days. How is this going to work? Still, it's a bit toothless, but it's better. And it, the onus is a bit more on the employer. So it's harder for them to say no. They can't just go because I don't feel like it. They have a more stringent list. But the next stage, you know, which we're aiming for 2027 is default. So it's really all on the employer to go why it can't work. So, you know, work in progress, but the words flexible working and bill are on the table. And that's something I don't think we could ever have imagined eight years ago. I suppose as well, it gives, you know, even without the law in place or even without the default, as you say, the fact is, is that it gives women a power that they can ask for it, that it's not something that they're inventing that people want. It's not, that it's not it's just there. my own pathetic personal circumstances, my own inability to cope, my own exactly. unwillingness to deliver. And all these things you can imagine, many male, some female bosses leveling at you. Well, you know, if you're not interested in the job. I took my engagement ring off whenever I would go to interview around that time like I look back at the onus that was on women to simply navigate this biological juncture of your life before you'd even got pregnant Mm. you know we were sort of preempting the discrimination that was about to hit us Mm. you know you've got a sense of it which is quite crazy when you think about it that men just don't have to think about at all not on any level there's always that really good point isn't it that the whole kind of job structure is predicated on the idea that there was someone at home doing all the other things you know so the idea of like even it you know in a working couple two people out there there's still somebody has to be available to do all the things that are necessary from childcare to cleaning to cooking to everything all of the things and so you know without that flexibility how is anybody supposed to survive my mum uh, said something relatively controversial in the context of what I do. She said, I do get sad sometimes looking at how you two, my ex and I, were trying to navigate equality within the home. You know, she said, I think your dad and I, he went out, earned the bacon, I cooked it. I think it was easier for us. You know, I really do. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying I've seen you burn out. I've seen you like crying more than you've been laughing. I've seen your relationship break down. You know, I have seen anxiety, stress, postnatal depression, very real mental and physical afflictions that I think 
in that moment, I looked at her and I went, yeah, we are this transitional generation that is trying, we don't give a shit about having it all, but even having something is almost catastrophic to your mental relationship, you know, all the health around a person. Mm. The other two, because we think about, don't we, we think about, you know, our careers being stalled. We think about being cop blocked, as you say, professionally, but we don't think that much about the pressure it applies to our relationships and our partnerships. And how much do you think this contributed to your marriage eventually breaking down? This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now, you guys know that we're not shy about getting things off our chest. The tiny inconveniences that can ruin our days to the big, overwhelming worries that can flood our nights. Trouble is, we all got into the habit of saying, I'm absolutely fine. Emily and I added the but specifically to get off autopilot and give ourselves the space to say what we were really experiencing. But we weren't always so free with our inner furies. A few years ago, I began experiencing debilitating panic attacks because I felt I couldn't tell anyone all the things that I was feeling, that I was not coping, that I felt like a failure. I was so ashamed, so I kept it all bottled inside. And of course, it started leaking out. It was only when I found a therapist and began sharing those doubts and insecurities with her that the panic began to dissipate. Because therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash midult. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash midult. Better help, because sometimes the best thing to do is acknowledge that we are not, in fact, absolutely fine. Oh, you're just like Jeremy Paxman. Like, straight <laughs> there. That's, That's what they say. Let's <laughs> not beat around the old, um, the old bush. So the way I could describe it with Matt and I is it's like with childcare, like the investment in childcare isn't even close to where it needs to be. But yet there's lots of posturing from government. Look at us, we're helping all the mummies and come and vote for us because uh, we're going to invest in childcare. What they're saying is, look, uh, we've put some money into the M25. Get get in your car, start driving. Unfortunately, we haven't finished the road yet, um, but hurtle over there anyway and good luck with navigating where it stops. And I think that's the way to probably describe where I think a lot of couples are right now. I mean, Matt and I wrote a book called Where's My Happy Ending? I mean, the writing was kind of on the wall. We were struggling to navigate, I think, the it's papering over the cracks of uh, a system we were functioning in, not even functioning, barely functioning in, that really was not set up for two people to exist like this. It's still that dystopian world of man goes out to work, woman cooks the bacon. And I think the best way to describe it was probably the, I think this is not on Matt, but I think it's on a lot of men, the weird, bizarre emasculation of any man seeking to look after his child. It might not be instilled in him, but there's this expectation that the childcare burden, I say burden, the weight of childcare is still on female shoulders. And I think we are probably representative of quite a lot of couples who in that pandemic, where everything got magnified, all the like domesticity that I was taking on, the domestic load that was piling up in my head whilst trying to hold on to my career, I 
I think it was like Jenga mm. bits just being pulled out until honestly I couldn't see him anymore he couldn't see me anymore and yes I think I started almost putting everything into my campaign flex appeal because it felt like the most solid thing weirdly mm. like we were fighting all the time we were like lots of couples in that pressure cooker and I think anybody that was saying it was all just sunshine and roses you know wasn't really in the room because mm. it wasn't so it's a sad story in many ways uh it's one that I would definitely say has been impacted by me trying to hold on to my something mm-hmm. but we've come through the other side of irretrievable breakdown and there is immense respect and repair and retrieval of all of those broken pieces that circumstance took away from us, I would say, uh, rather than a lack of decency and kindness and love. It was a circumstantial exit. It was almost defeat over divorce, I would say. Let's try and win the war a different way, I guess, maybe. And yeah, I think as well, you know, in terms of the way that what you said about holding on to or something, this is the real difficulty, isn't it? Because this world is set up for one kind of structure, but Financially, we need two incomes, but also at the same time, there's so much opportunity out there that we need to kind of take as women and that we can take, we should be allowed to take as women. And so therefore, yeah, I can see why it becomes incredibly frustrating. Your breakup post, the way that you spoke about the night that you came to the decision, you and Matt together, where you, I think you stayed up all night and danced in the kitchen. Is that right? Yeah. It was a yeah, remarkable yeah. short story, really, wasn't it? Do you remember it, Emily? Yeah, absolutely. It was incredibly moving. Did, did that happen in real time? You had a night where you reached this point where the decision was being made. I think it was abject relief mm. and grief. Mm. It was in equal measure. And that because we had given up holding on to something that wasn't making either of us happy, there was a relief, a lightness, a joy. And also we had just about got out before it blew up. Yeah. So I would say we were heading towards something big. You know, it could have been an affair. It could have been one of us properly breaking down. It could have been something that our kids saw that they couldn't come back. I don't know what it would have been. Or just it could have been just endless nastiness. Endless contempt. And that was uh, what our relationship counsellor, again, recognising privilege of even having a relationship counsellor in the context of all of this. But she said, when you reach that point of contempt, really the writing is on the wall and we we reached that and I think we were like right this isn't just about us these little girls deserve co-parents they don't deserve co-enemies you know like and if we're going to have to make this seismic decision we need to do it before we've actually blown up the whole Mm. unit it was like we need to rebuild, Not it's not about deconstruction, it's not about a devastation, it's not a pity party, it's not like, oh my God, you know, I'm so sad, Anna and Matt, that you've divorced. It was just, look, let's recognise this isn't working, let's rebuild, regroup, restructure. And I think that was when we started turning the dial on, actually, we can do this and still come through it potentially we didn't know at the time as friends and that night you mentioned was probably the turning point of that where the light flooded in again not in a sense of we want to get back together again but it was ah you know what we've done we've done okay uh we've got a six out of ten here and uh those little girls 
are going to cry. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to yeah. remain our priority in all of this. And that was what we never lost sight of. And I'm so proud of us. And it's not been easy at all. Yeah, no. Part of the sort of putting your money where your mouth is in terms of, of them has been the nesting that you are doing. So they, and am I right in thinking, they stay in their family home and you guys move in and out of it and it's very amicable. So how does that work? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, like I have to say, when I set out on this journey of life, uh, I'm not entirely sure I imagine being a magpie uh, <laughs> flying around a nest um, with my ex in, stashed in one place and hinge activated in the other. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not entirely sure when I looked at that happily ever after, this is where I thought I'd land. And, and he's in the flat when you're not in the flat. Yes. I mean, it must be absolute hinge central in that flat. <laughs> from both sides imagine the mind boggles it is a lot to navigate so i a lot of laundry big piece of my life being um let's say like that jenga setup you know like anything at any one point can bring the whole thing down but we're holding for now we're holding and uh so it's okay it is look it is not easy. It is not pleasant in places. It is There is no happy ending here, but there is happiness. Mm. And that is it. And I so in breaking up our home, some might say, you know, your daughters are the product of a broken home. No, for me, existing in the setup Matt and I had where we were, I was crying more than I was laughing. We were grappling every single day, walking through the quagmire of, marital promises you know that we'd made each other and actually no they're not product from the broken home it was worse existing in a home that was breaking so it's again language you know and I am not here for some divorce club I've had quite a bit of flack online I'm somehow glamorizing divorce I'm like mate there is nothing glamorous about divorce. Look at me right now. I've got stains on my hoodie. Hinges pinging in the background. <laughs> I don't know where I live. I don't know what's in what house and what's not. I vaguely know my kids are fine. Uh, my job's all over the place, you know. And so, no, it's not glamorous. But uh, what I come back to is if my two little girls came to me and said, Mommy, I'm really unhappy and I'm really sad and it's been like this for a long time, there is no way I would say, well, there's some archaic uh, rule book that you signed up to. So crack on and park your happiness, please, because there's a bigger thing at play systemically that says it's till death do us part, which Matt quite astutely said sounds a little bit more like a threat than a vow. And so, yeah, it's not uh, glamorous. It's not joyful, uh, you know, but it's life. And we're navigating it with more light than dark. And that is all I focus on. Yeah. And modelling something positive and independent to those children. Well, it was when my sister came out aged 29 and married her wife. I remember the kids having lots of questions going, but wasn't she with her boyfriend before? And, you know, there were so many questions. And all I kept coming back to was she's chosen happiness and love and that's so important in life. And uh, they are the happiest couple I think I've ever, ever met. And uh, that's how I kind of said it back to her about our relationship. I was like, and mommy's choosing happiness, so is daddy. But, you know, you are our focus. And 
they really didn't give two shits, really, to be absolutely honest. They sort of were like, can we watch Mamma Mia 2 now? I liked what you said about the co-parenting, because I think that ultimately that's what children need, is two parents who are taking responsibility for them and who are communicating and who are friends and who are responsible and they know where they're going to be and whatever. As long as that's sorted, you know, actually, in terms of the dynamics of your personal relationship with Matt, it, I don't think it matters as much, ultimately, because actually you don't want want to be, grow up in a household where your you know your parents may be there but they're fighting all the time or it's chaos for different reasons or whatever you know like all of these things it's about sort of taking responsibility being grown up about where the important thing is and the important thing is is not shattering the relationship to the point of no recognition so that you then can't go on and parent the way that you want to and that feels the same way with the whole sort of system reflects the working it's exactly the same thing isn't it it's understanding what people need to make their lives work because otherwise and to you keep know. them contributing. Yes. You know, once contributing as parents, but also contributing economically and also, frankly, to keep having babies. Oh, why aren't more young women keen on having children? Oh, I wonder why. Oh, yeah. Look at us. Look at us. <laughs> We're yeah. the parents women for having it all. <laughs> I know. And just look at us. Right. <laughs> if you dare. Look, you too could have this situation. This could be all yours. Like irretrievable breakdown, like literally hair loss, uh, like financial loss. Yeah, I read something the other day saying, you know, I never thought that, you know, when I was this age, treating myself would mean turning the heating on. <laughs> well, there was an amazing comedian who said, having it all is not good. Like, all is not good. Think of how you feel after an all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> good. It's not like you go, oh, wow, I'm so glad I had those baby back ribs on top of, like, the three hamburgers. You come back and you go, I don't feel great. And that's actually, I think, coming back to, like, what the expectations have been societally of women. And I think we're beyond that now, definitely, that narrative. But, no, having it all, oh, good God. Like, I think I tried to have something in there. Are you finding that, even though, obviously, some parts of your life are going to be much more frantic as a result of being a single parent, you also have pockets of time that you didn't have before? Yes. And that is quite a nutritious, unfamiliar, amazing thing. As you're sitting in your shared flat when your ex-husband is in the family house and, and, and maybe, you know, no one from Hinge is there that night and you just have some time or you can go for a run because you're not doing the school run, whatever it might be. How, how are you feeling about having a little bit more for you? It's a recalibration. I love how the word you use, nutritious. It does feel like that. There's a beautiful way to describe it, I would say. Um, the initial separation anxiety was debilitating. I will, you know, hold that close to my heart because it is not something to be underestimated. Yeah. And I did, I think. You know, I think I had some, again, vision of skittering about Hinge and, you know, having brunch and doing work here and there. And it's actually the loneliness the lack of noise, the low level chit chat, even the arguments, you miss that hum of uh, a 24 hour parent really. And yes, there's great relief in having time for yourself, but before I could really sit with myself and I did, I sat in abject loneliness, probably two months ago, I really sat in it in the hole just to sit with myself and look at myself and understand that, you know, I am on my own now. There is nobody really to pick up the phone to, you know, a significant other. Uh, I'm responsible for financially contributing to my side. I'm responsible for my mental health. I can't go down because they need me. So yes, 
there's two sides of that coin. And one is nutritious. One is, well, if we're talking about hinge, fruitful. Um, <laughs> and one is abject loneliness and a complete recalibration of self, I would say, which is a huge positive, but it has been, yeah, laced with pain, uh, I would say, recognising what you've lost. And like I said, my friend who's just got divorced, she said she still lives in the family home and the kids go to her exes. And she said, there's nothing that prepares you for the moment you walk past their room and you see their little sock on the floor and they're not there. Mm. It is a grief. It's a level of grief. There is nothing that prepared me yesterday for rifling around my bag and finding my daughter's little mitten. Mm. It's grief. You know, it's grief. And like I said, and relief. Grief and relief. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, how all these things, loneliness, recalibration, all the nutritious stuff, fun, dating, you know, panic, can all be true and all be happening concurrently. That that it can be the rainbow of our lives. It's not like, I think people assume. Also, there's something, you know, single mother is a slightly tragic term, you know, it suggests that something's gone horribly wrong. I don't like it very much. And so either you are, you know, wearing heels and no knickers and going on a date, or you're in a crumpled heap at home with a bottle of wine crying. And actually- Are you here? Are you actually here? Are you- <laughs> <laughs> it's, all, it's all happening, right? It's all happening at the same time. The therapy, the exercise, the work, the panic, the joy, the happiness, the missing. It's all, it's all happening. And you, I think you love being single. I've been a single mother, you know, all, all my child's life. And I think you just learn to roll with it and you learn when solitary is tipped into lonely and that maybe you should pick up the phone or whatever things you need to put in place just to keep you steady enough to you know not fall down okay. yeah and also not to be too busy as well I think to give yourself time to feel that I noticed that with you and with my other friends who's you know is that you become like a sort of time junkie or like oh my god I can do all of these things fill 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 but and you don't give yourself any time to kind of actually decompress and to process well I, I get I get you know I've said this to you before I get frightened that I'm lazy mm. however busy I am I think I'm lazy you know I think that about myself. Which you are not. But I do need a lot of times when like a lot, like, you know, yes. you know, like sort of like not exactly eight to twelve hours a day, but sort of three if possible. <laughs> you know, if at, if at all possible. Um and you're still working full pelt. So the radio show, how many days a week is that? Uh so that's like two basically. So it's not too it's not too bad. But it's probably ironically, I'm a real nine to fiver. I really enjoy the structure of a nine to five. <laughs> that's so funny. Given you've spent your whole last eight years dedicated to smashing that yes, exactly. <laughs> and I think that's the point in all of this whether it's flexible working or irretrievable breakdown is choice right so it's not about deconstructing the nine-to-five if that fits for some people it's not about completely railroading marriage and everything it means it's going there's those two structures that some love to exist in and marriage is a wonderful place to be you know if for me I like the structure of going to an office every day I do and a lot of people don't understand that how I, they can, I can reconcile that with deconstructing the nine to five yeah. but the key word that underpins it is choice choice of um, existence and how you navigate that life and I think that's been the biggest turning point for me is that I would love on both sides of the coin to so a woman that is financially controlled by her husband who has no choice of leaving a really abusive relationship you know I would like to let that woman know that there's women's aid I would like to let that woman know there's a lawyer here who can help her 
And on the other side of the coin with flexible working, you know, I'd love to let women know that there are laws in place that are going to be pushing this more for them. There are ways in which you can work that do enable um, parenting and working, you know, it's just the common denominator really going forward is choice and breaking down a system that just doesn't serve women. Yeah, absolutely. And also the fact is, is that, you know, you will get so much out of people when you give them choice. That's the thing. That's the, the stupid way of looking at, at everything is thinking, well, you follow my rules and you, I will, this will get the best results. It's we always say, true. don't we? never underestimate the productivity of a working mother. Also, I like the fact that it's like, I can't remember who said it, but it was like, I want some, one thing, but I will defend to the death your right to choose, basically. Yes. it's. I don't know where that comes yeah, from. Yeah, I remember but, that quote. Was it about abortion? I think so. But it's sort of like... I think it was... It's, I, I, it's, it's not like, for me. Would, it's not it, for me, but yes. But your right to this is what's important. Yeah, it's that choice. It's that simple. I don't think you know it when you're in it. Like I came from Amsterdam where things were a bit more centred around family, where you had like a Kramzorg, uh, which is a 10 days of maternity nurse who lives with you, helps you breastfeed, looked at my Instagram and said, oh, I saw that you love banana and strawberry smoothies and I've made you one, does the washing, walks the dogs, all part of the NHS in Holland. I had one baby there, came to London, had a second baby here, last stitch done up, like wheeled out, <laughs> baby in hand, complete PTSD, complete um, breakdown. Um, you know, if I hadn't experienced how it could be in Holland, I would not have fought for what I fought uh, yeah. in the UK. I would have just accepted it because we conform and we accept. And there is an element of sort of lemming status until we've seen another way. Mm. And I think that was it. I wouldn't have done any of this without my existence in Holland. And the reason the Dutch invest so heavily in that 10 days postnatally is because it saves them a fuck ton of cash later on on antidepressants, on anxiety meds, on like therapy, trauma, everything that happens in those 10 days. They ring fence it, they protect it, they recognize what it is to give birth to a child. And for me, that's where it starts in the UK. You know, that's where it begins, that lack, that lack of duty of care to women going through such a seismic task as somehow heaving a human out of their body. Um, so, you know, I'm very grateful to the benchmarks I've been offered in my life that have meant I can fight for a different life because I lived it, I experienced it, and I saw it differently. And I, there's no way uh, I'm going to let my little girls grow up in the context that I did. I can't do it. I quite simply cannot raise them in the way that my mum and dad raised me. I genuinely thought, hand on heart, I could do anything and the playing field was level. So did we. We talk yeah. about this all the time. We can have it all, we thought, with a man's hand up our skirt and the glass ceiling inches above our heads. We can, you know, this is going to be absolutely fine. We're powerhouses, we thought. You know. Yes, we've got heads we were told for constantly we were powerhouses. Yeah. We can be the sort of hardworking Madonna whore that everybody expects us to be. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. Be, but it's <laughs> fucking exhausting. A hardworking Madonna whore. That is definitely where I'm at. <laughs> oh, my God, exactly. oh my. What's your first Christmas look like? Your first Christmas as a divorced lady. 
as a divorce lady. Uh, so we've decided to have Christmas together, the four of us, Matt, me and the two girls. And that is just to anchor them. Everything has been about, like I said, in that moment where we told them we were divorcing. Uh, my best friend, Polly, is a teacher and her parents divorced when she was younger and they came clattering in and went um, crying, angry. He'd had an affair. And she's like, there's nothing other than trauma that can come from that scenario. And she said, as a teacher, all you can hope to do is bring an energy to that room that's calm and safe and not foe in any way, but just anchor them. And before Matt and I went in, we were both crying quite a lot because uh, it was that seemingly big moment you see in films and you hear kids talk about years later as this pivotal moment in their lives. And we went in with lightness. We were like, mommy and daddy, you know, are not in love with each other, but um, we do love our family unit and we're best friends. And I think we've carried that energy, even though it was quite hard at the time, because uh, we were both crying before going in. We've carried that energy through to big moments like Christmases, uh, like their birthdays, whatever is going on in our life, whatever hinge dates are clashing around out back, we are going to anchor those two girls that is our till death do us part. Uh, that is our commitment. And also you got out of the marriage before you hated each other too much to do this. Just. <laughs> God, this episode should be sponsored by Hinge. <laughs> I mean, it really could. It's basically it like... a dating episode without, yes, with no specifics at all. It's calm. Yeah. Amongst the chaos, I've made peace. And I think this is what I wish I'd done sooner. I've made peace with these fragments being messy, turning up as myself. The love of my life is probably my best friend, Polly. Like we've fallen in love completely in a non-sexual way. We've just lent in. And I always thought that it would be uh, the knight in shining armor. It's actually been a women's circle. Uh, mm. That's been my happy after, happy ever after. It's been not a midlife crisis. I've got tattoos all over my arms, like, you know, accessible self-harm. And uh, I have recalibrated my life in ways that doesn't fit with people's societal expectations. You know, like I said, pity is the word, but amongst it all, it's no crisis, it's an opportunity. I have found my midlife opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, I met my husband at 24. I set off uh, when I was a child. I'm 42, the inversion of that. And I would say, looking at myself from 24, I would look in and be like, oh, hon, bless you. You're all right, babe. I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. And it's taken a long time to be able to say that. I'm so glad that you talk about peace. You know, we fixate on happiness, success, and then we might mellow a bit and start talking about like contentment. Uh, but peace is not something we talk about enough. And it really is a wonderful, just to find some solace, peace. It's a wonderful place to be. I don't want a happily ever after. I just want some peace, uh, you know, fleeting amount of contentment, a pepper army every so often and hinge activated. <laughs> well, we wish you all that and more this Christmas. Yes, And um, no, thank you, actually, yeah, for thanks. everything that you've done for women like us and for our daughters and the ones to come. Because I agree. It, I don't think it can be underestimated. Yeah, here, bloody here. Well, yeah. here's to, we've known each other for the best part of those eight years, let's be honest. And if we're talking about the women's circle, it's not just 
people you see every day. It's you guys. It's us turning up for each other. You recognizing I'm in chaos at the moment. Getting me onto a Zoom is chaos. But we turn up when we turn up and we're here yeah. when we're here. We turn up eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and when we do, it's magnificent. It's magnificent. So Anna Whitehouse, we love you. Thank you so much. Happy Christmas. Best of luck. And we'll see you very soon. Merry Christmas. You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Midult. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.